So one of the things my friends and I did in college for fun is we enjoyed watching movies as a group. But there's something you never did when we got together to watch for movies, and that is you never brought a movie that was actually meaningful to you or you actually cared about. Because we didn't watch these movies to get something out of them or have our lives change. We were watching them to make fun of them. We were a peanut gallery the whole time. And so what would happen is if you brought, you had this movie, for example, that maybe was a, a very meaningful to you. You teared up when you watched it. You wanted your friends to see it too. And so you brought it with you. You know, you're like, I want everybody else to see it. So you would bring it with you and you'd plug it in, ready for everybody else to tear up just like you did. And that's not what happened. They would joke about the CGI in the movie and how terrible it looked. They would, they would make fun of the actor about how the way he would say the word book or something like that. Or they would find a plot hole and they would just keep talking about the plot hole and the plot until by the time you got to the end of the movie, instead of people being in tears because it was meaningful and special, they were in tears because they were laughing at it. And so you had this movie that for you, you enjoyed it and was meaningful to you and meant a lot to you, but for them was a, a laughing stock and meant nothing, and the whole difference was the approach to it, the way you came to watch the movie in the first place. And that's what happens when we come to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is a book about transformation. But for some people, you might read this book, and it is a book of transformation, and you get there, and it means a lot to you, and you get changed when you read the book of Ephesians, and you're amazed by it. But for others, you might read it, and it falls like a dud. It just seems like a bunch of rhetoric, a bunch of words. And the difference often is the foundation you have when you come to read the book. Now, God's word is God's word, which means even if you don't believe it's God's word, he can still use it to powerfully change your life because God still speaks through scripture no matter what you believe about scripture. But the Bible does tell us there's certain things we can believe that increases the likelihood that God can help us and change us and use Scripture to speak to us. And so when you get to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, every letter back then, just like now, had a greeting. They were talking, they were greeting people. But Paul does a twist in all of his greetings where he's laying the foundation for the things that you really need to believe in order to increase the likelihood that God's going to use this book to actually be meaningful to you. And he actually gives, in these two verses, six things you should believe as foundations if the book of Ephesians is going to be transformational. And they can be summed up like this in one sentence. You should believe that the author, the audience, and the purpose are all empowered by God the Father and Christ the Son. Even if you can't remember the six things we're going to talk about, if you can at least remember this, that the author, the audience, and the purpose are all empowered by God the Father and Christ the Son. So jump back with me in, in your time machines and think about and imagine that it's A.D. 55, and you're walking down a, walking down a well-paved Roman road with the Apostle Paul. You've got your your sack on your back with all your tunics and your cloaks, and you're with Paul on his third missionary journey. And as you're going down this Roman road, you top a hill, and suddenly you see this huge city, and it's Ephesus. 
Ephesus is actually the fourth or fifth largest city in the known world at the time. They had over 250,000 residents. Massive city. And you look at Paul and you, and you and him begin the road down into the midst of the city. And as you began to journey through the city of Ephesus, you start to notice a few things. First, you notice that it has a lot of political power. You look over and you see a Capitol building and there's politicians in their aides running around like chickens with their head cut off, going crazy. And you remember that Ephesus is the capital of one of the wealthiest provinces in the in Roman Empire, the province of Asia. Well, then you keep going and you hear cheering and it gets louder and louder till it turns into a roar and what you see then is the largest open air theater in the greek world housing 50,000 people an open air theater with 50,000 people no microphones Get, i mean can you imagine that and next to it there's sporting arenas for races and there's places where they had animals fights and even there's a sign a poster on the wall advertising for the next pan hellenic games which was the second most important sporting event behind the Olympics at the time. It was coming to Ephesus. So it was a political power. It was also an entertainment power. And as you stare at the stadium, you almost get run over by a cart. And the guy yells at you in frustration, and you realize you're in the middle of four major roads going through the city, and it's an economic power. There were four major trade routes that went through Ephesus. It was the doorway to go from Europe to Asia, And on top of that, you can see cargo ships in the Aegean Sea, packed full of cargo, toting them up to the city. It was a huge economic center. But you also realize that it was a huge center for immorality, too. Because as you keep walking, a glint catches your eye, and and it's blinding. But as your eyes adjust, you begin to look at it, and you see this massive temple of Artemis which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the largest pure marble structure in the world, four times larger than the Parthenon, gleaming in in that sun. And the whole city is packed because people have come during this time to worship this Greek goddess of Artemis, who is the goddess of crops and the goddess of fertility, which is bad in itself because it's a false god, but it's even worse when you realize that in that day, the way they thought you gained spiritual knowledge about Artemis and and you worshipped Artemis is through sexual practices. And in fact, archaeologists have found an engraving in a stone by the harbor telling sailors not where to get food, where to get supplies, but where the nearest brothels were. You also know it's a center for the worship of Caesar. They worship Caesar Augustus himself, and every statue, every poster, every coin talked about the gospel of Caesar, how he was bringing peace to the world. Plus, witchcraft and demonic worship was huge there. People selling all kinds of witchcraft, books of witchcraft, sold right there in the bookstores. It was a center for huge immorality. Well, you're with Paul. And you're on his third missionary journey, and you're trying to establish churches there. It's the center of political power, economic power, entertainment power, these religious ties. It's an important city to get a church planted in. And Paul's already been there once. He was there in his second missionary journey. And there was other Christians there that were leaders, uh, like Priscilla and Aquila. Apollos had been there before. So there was already a church there. But Paul, and you're with him, 
you, you decide to come to Ephesus again, and he stays the longest stay he did in any city, two to three years. Two to three years in Ephesus trying to build up that city there and the church there because that city was so important to the whole world at that time. And Paul has tons of success. Churches are built, not just in Ephesus, but around Ephesus. People are getting saved. Lives are being transformed. In fact, there's such a revival in Ephesus that witchcraft and demonic possession books are publicly burned in the streets. And even the glorious temple of Artemis begins to fall in disrepair because there's not enough people coming to it anymore to pay the bills. But Paul and his friends, they they don't experience a great time. They also experience a lot of persecution. 1 Corinthians, he describes his life there as being attacked by wild animals. He had a lot of people blaspheme him. And then the silversmiths finally had enough of Paul and his friends. They had lost money because nobody was buying statues anymore. They were losing money because nobody was going to the temple or doing the witchcraft anymore. And they incite a riot in the city. They get the whole city to turn on Paul and his friends. They drag them into the, to the arena. And they almost would have beaten them and killed them if they weren't afraid of the Roman government. Their fear of the Roman government was the only reason that stopped them. And Paul, about that time, decides that he needs to move on to plant churches in other places. And so he leaves the church at Ephesus and the surrounding Asia, and he moves on. Flash forward with me about seven to eight more years, and you're with Paul now, and he's in Rome in prison because he had taken the gospel seriously, and he was trying to share the gospel. He's imprisoned in Rome. The guy next to him is a Roman soldier strapped to the nines with the most elite military gear money can buy, watching every move that you and Paul are doing. After seven to eight years, Paul knows that Ephesus and the surrounding area needs an encouragement. It's likely that the Jews and the Gentiles weren't getting around. It's also likely, though, that the people in Ephesus had started to slide. They'd started to think, well, you know, I'm saved. I've got my ticket to heaven. That's great. But my friends and the, and the world around me, they seem to be doing well. Everything seems to be going smoothly. Why is it that I can get saved and just keep doing that? Why should the gospel not just transform my soul, but also transform my behavior? And so Paul, he writes this letter to the entire region to talk about that. And in these opening two verses, he takes this greeting, like I said, that all letters back then had, but he twists it to set the foundation for what he's about to write in, in the book of Ephesians. And he gives these six things that they should know from the start before they even start reading. And it's important for us to understand these things too because we face the same temptations as they did back then. We're surrounded by affluence. We're surrounded by wealth. We're surrounded by moral depravity. We're surrounded by voices that tell us things. We have people in our lives that either aren't Christians or they are Christians and don't follow Christ, and they seem to have pretty good lives. And then we go, well, you know, I'm saved. I've got my ticket to heaven, and I'm pretty okay with just that. What it, why should I do care or do more about the gospel doing anything to me besides just saving me? Why should there be more? And Paul sets that foundation with these two verses. So let's read them. 
verse 1 and 2 of chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first truth he says you must believe is this, that the author is an apostle of Christ Jesus. He is not some dude that has an experience and decides to write. He's not a theologian. He's not even another pastor. Paul, the author, is an apostle of Christ Jesus. What's an apostle? The apostle was a term that was used back then for an a emissary or a messenger who had an official role with somebody of extremely high importance. And their role with that person is they were to deliver the message of that person of high importance verbatim, exactly how that person said it. The apostle didn't, in the secular sense, didn't have any authority on themselves, and they weren't supposed to ad-lib and just make up whatever they thought. They only had authority because of the person that sent them out had authority, and they only had the message that the person that sent them out said. So Paul says, I'm not somebody speaking on my own accord. I'm not something ma someone making up a message. I am an apostle, and I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. And it's important to realize that because the Bible uses apostle a few other times, but almost every time it uses it to mean the 12 men in the New Testament that God selectively chose to fill that unique role that nobody else in history has had that role before. I was in Tuscaloosa, and this had been years ago, and I was driving around, and I saw a billboard for a revival service, and it said the speaker was Apostle so-and-so. I don't know if y'all have seen that before, things like that. There are other Christian denominations that sometimes call their leaderships apostles. But in the biblical sense of the word, there's only been 12 guys who have been chosen to be official messengers of Christ Jesus. The 11 people that walked with him in life, plus Paul, who was chosen to replace Judas Iscariot for betraying Jesus. So the first thing you got to believe is this is not some other author. It's not some other dude. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus. And he's an apostle, second truth, by the will of God. Paul's saying, I didn't choose this path. He's saying, I, I didn't um, get preaching and got famous, and now that I'm famous, I'm writing stuff. This is not some celebrity giving his memoirs of what he thinks. God willed, planned, and proceeded to uniquely pick Paul to fulfill a role that only 12 people in history have been able to fulfill. And you have to believe, then, that the author is empowered by God the Father and Christ the Son, that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And the thing is, when you look through history, the early church understood this. We, when we go about, we see things, you know, it's common. You'll hear this. You'll hear people say, hey, you know, the Apostle Paul, he was smart, he was wise, he had a lot of good things to say about God, but Paul was writing about his ideas, he was influenced by his culture, he was influenced by, the, by his day, and so we, they'll say we have to take what he said with a grain of salt, because he's biased by his culture. 
And that's not what the, the word apostle actually means. And the early church knew that. They understood when they looked at these writings that we call the New Testament that they were different. Every New Testament book is either written by an apostle or by a close and associate of the apostle that the apostle proved to write that book. And so when the early church received these things we call the New Testament, they didn't have to hold a business meeting to decide if it was a scripture or not. They didn't take a vote on what books to add in the New Testament. They knew and they believed that the authors of these books were uniquely empowered by God to write divine, inerrant, infallible scripture. And everybody back then knew that. It wasn't until several hundred years later that heretics came up that started going, well, can we really trust what the apostles said? That the church held a council, and they didn't hold a council to decide which books go in the New Testament. They held a council so they could officially tell the heretics, this is what we've always believed, and y'all are wrong. And so, when we look at the book of Ephesians, we see that the Holy Spirit speaks to us today through Ephesians. It can speak through you today because the author is not some normal author. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. It's just as meaningful to you as it was for them back then. That means first, we, when you come to this book, you have to believe that. You have to believe this is not something we can come to that we can critique or something that we can look at as every other book, or something we can go, well, I like these ideas, but I like the ideas another author writes better. This is a book that is uniquely authored, and it means we should approach it with humility. We should approach it with thankfulness that God would give us a book like this. We should be inspired to read it, to memorize it, to study it. And to know even if we have doubts about what the book is, and the authorship of the book, the the way to make it meaningful, the way God can use it most, is when we approach it just with faith. That God uniquely inspired these men, Paul for the book of Ephesians, to write an inerrant, divinely inspired book that no other writing in history other than the books in the Bible have been written in that way. So that's the first two truths. That the author is divinely inspired, that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and then the second, the third one, sorry, is that the audience is special too. The audience is also empowered by God, the Father, and Christ, the Son. Specifically, he says the audience are Christians, and every single one of them are saints. He says it in the second half of verse 1, to the saints who are at Ephesus. This word saint is so, just like apostle, has been so messed up today. Because even if you look into like Webster's Dictionary, what a saint is, it'll tell you a saint is some person that the church got together and looked at their life and decided that, hey, because they had a great life and the things they did, they get some kind of superior status to us, us normal Christians. But the Bible never talks about that procedure, and it never describes any Christian as being a higher status than any other Christian. The Bible calls everybody who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ a saint. So what does it mean to be a saint? Literally, it means to be set apart, to be a group of people that have been separated and sanctified by God. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, God has pulled you out of the world, put you in Christ, 
and he's put, put you in Christ for himself and for Christ. You've been a saint. You've been set apart. You've been sanctified for God. You're in the world, but your true citizenship is in heaven. And the cool reality is that happens to you regardless of your past. But then he said this fourth thing that you have to believe, and that is that all Christians are saints, and you become a Christian, you become a saint by your faith in Christ Jesus. In verse 1, he, he says, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. In the Greek, this word faithful doesn't necessarily mean loyal or trustworthy. It can mean those who believe in, have faith in, are full of faith in Christ Jesus. He straight up tells you. You don't become a saint based on the things you've done in the past. And you're not a saint now because of the things you do now. You're a saint because of one reason only, because you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, then God views you as a saint no matter what you've done or no matter what you do. And the amazing, if we think about it, the amazing part about that truth is when we look at ourselves, honestly, we don't see ourselves as being saints, do we? When we see sinners, when we look at ourselves, we, like, we see our past and we go, man, my past has been so messed up. And even now we go, man, I've failed so many times. I continue to fail. And we can get to worry, you know, you know is God not looking at me different? Is he treating me different? But the reality is God sees you as a saint. Because your sainthood is based purely on the blood of Christ and not what you do. And we can even look at the Apostle Paul. Remember his story. Paul, he was um, a Pharisee. He was somebody that was involved in religion. But Paul, he was not the poster child for somebody who's good in his past and then became a Christian Paul was the poster child probably of somebody who deserved to never be a Christian and yet became one anyways. Because Paul was all about hating, mistreating, uh, kidnapping, persecuting, beating, and at least supporting the killing of Christians. And this is how Paul himself described what he did he said in Acts 26, verse 9, So I thought to myself that I had to act in strong opposition to the name of Christ Jesus. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but I also cast my vote against them, and they were being put to death. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And since I was extremely enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. He was essentially a terrorist against Christians. And yet, God transformed him. He saved him. And Paul himself is considered a saint. So when we look at Paul, we can look at ourselves and say, it doesn't matter what I've done in the past. And it doesn't matter what I've struggled with now. God saves me through faith, and he sees me as a saint. I am a saint to God, not a sinner to God because of Christ Jesus. And the people in your life who are friends and family members, 
who you might think, God and nobody could ever get them to change their mind. Those people could never be saved. We can look at Paul and say, you can never say never about anybody about getting saved. You can never say never about anybody getting changed. Because if God can save and change this dude who said he was extremely enraged and did everything he possibly could to, to persecute Christians, he can save your friends and family members too, just like he can save you. So you have to believe as you read this that he's talking to Christians who are saints. That's the third one. And that the fourth one being that they are become saints through faith in Christ Jesus. The uh, Queen Victoria, she had an interesting childhood. Queen Victoria was the Queen of England, the late 19th century, very famous. And, but she had a, a, an interesting childhood because the people around her didn't want her to know she was going to be the next queen out of fear that she would get spoiled. And so she grew up for a lot of her childhood not even realized she was royalty. Can you imagine that? Um, and one day, though, her teacher revealed that to her, that she would be the next queen of England, that she was actually royalty, and her response surprised everybody. She basically said, since I'm royalty, I am royalty, I'm going to act like royalty. Since I am royalty, she says, quote, I will be good. And she lived her whole life after that with the behavior of a royal she lived her whole life after that trying to be good because she knew she was royalty. And that's what Paul is leading to us when he reminds us that we are Christians who are saints, who have been saved by faith in Christ, that <laughs> even though we were sinners and we are saints, we often struggle, instead of acting like saints, to act like sinners. Saints that act like sinners instead. We don't act like the position that God has put us in already. And so the, the, the application, the thing to do is first to believe that you become a saint purely by faith in Jesus Christ and not by your works. That every believer is a saint in Jesus' eyes and God's eyes no matter what you've done in the past or what you do now. And third, if you are a saint, <laughs> act like a saint. And know that because you are in Christ, when you do face opposition, he can overcome that. So we saw that the author is empowered by God the Son, God the Father, and Christ the Son. We saw the audience is empowered by God the Father and Christ the Son. And then third, we see that the purpose is inspired and empowered by God the Father and Christ the Son. Which leads to our fifth thing you have to believe, and that is that the purpose of this book is to give you grace and peace. He says in verse 2, grace to you and peace. Now it was normal in the Greek letters to tell people grace, and it was normal in Hebrew letters to tell people peace. So he basically includes both in his. The grace because of the Greek people, the, he, the peace because of the Hebrew people. But as always, he's not just referring to the, the he's not just saying hello or this term. He's, in, he's infusing them with theology. When he tells them grace, grace is the receiving of a gift that you never deserved. Grace and peace are often put next to each other as if they're synonyms, but grace and peace are not the same thing. Peace is the removal of something bad, a punishment that you do deserve. So when you receive mercy, you get the removal of a punishment you do deserve. Grace is the giving of a blessing that you never in a million years could have deserved. 
And so when he tells them that this letter's purpose is to give you grace, he's saying that, and he's praying for us, that as we read it, we'll see the blessings, the hope, and ultimately the gift of eternal life that we could never have deserved. But we have access to, according to the ways he says in this book. And the same is true about peace. Peace, the Hebrew word shalom, uh, which is not the word here, but the word it connects to in the Hebrew, meant not just absence of conflict, but a fullness, a wholeness, a fulfillment. I mean, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want to feel whole? Who doesn't want to be feel fulfilled in their lives? That's what it meant. And he says that his prayers, as you read this book, not only that you'll see this blessings that you don't deserve are accessible to you, but you'll find this wholeness and fulfillment that is available to you too. So you should expect to find grace and peace. And then finally, that sixth truth you should know and believe when you read this book is that grace and peace is only found in God the Father and Christ the Son. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a, um, a lot of ways to look for grace and peace. There's a lot of ways to seek for it. We can seek for it inside our activities. We can seek for it in what the world tells us when they say, you just be you. We can look for it in our hobbies. We can look for it in relationships. We can look for it in money. But according to this, he says, my prayer, my purpose is to teach you that true grace and true peace is only found in a real relationship with God the Father and Christ the Son. And so the purpose when you read this book, Ephesians, and really the old Bi whole Bible, is, is not to read it for just pure intellectual knowledge. And not to read it just for the sake because you're supposed to read it. Or come to church just because you've been told because you're supposed to come to church. You approach scripture with the purpose that God gave us scripture to have. And that is when you approach scripture, the purpose is to encounter God himself. That this is a conversation that God is having with you, a relational conversation he's having with you in Scripture. And the more you encounter God, the more you experience God as you encounter Scripture, the more you'll find grace and peace in your time of need. The problem we have as Christians and what the Ephesians were dealing with is not that we don't have access to grace and peace, it's that we, we don't choose to access it. Um, there was a lady, and I'll look up see her name real quick because I forgot, and her name was Hetty, uh, Hetty Green. Hetty Green died in 1919, and she was known as America's greatest miser. When she died in 1919, she left an inheritance of $100 million dollars. But she lived her whole life like she was dirt poor. She wouldn't even heat up oatmeal because the cost of heating up oatmeal was too high for her. She was forced to have her own son's leg amputated because she spent all of her time trying to find a free clinic instead of just going to a normal doctor. And, her, and even though she had all this wealth, even though she had all this access to money, it even brought about her own death because she had 
uh, and got into an argument over the price of skimmed milk, and it upset her so bad that she began to bleed internally and wouldn't even stop arguing to go to the doctor because she was so adamant she was going to get her price she wanted for skimmed milk, and she died. So Hetty Green, she went down as the America's greatest miser, and it wasn't because she didn't have access to all this wealth. It's that she chose to never do what was necessary to get to it. And that's what the Ephesians were dealing with that Paul addresses, and that's what we deal with today. Paul tells us in Ephesians in the book that we have access to grace, undeserved blessings, especially salvation. And we have access to peace, wholeness, that's only available through God the Father and Christ the Son. So when we read scripture and it's not meaningful and it falls like a dud and we don't get grace, we don't get peace, it's not because it's not, it's not in the scripture, it's not because it's the author's fault, and it's not because God's fault, it's because we are not approaching scripture with the purpose he has for us, and that is to meet God himself. And to see scripture the way God has us to see. And so we see inside these two verses the foundation for Ephesians. It can summed up like this, that you've got to believe when you read this book, if you want it to truly be meaningful, that the author, the audience, and the purpose are empowered by God the Father and Christ the Son. That the author is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. The audience are saints who are saints because they are faithful in Christ Jesus. And that is for grace and peace from God the Father and Christ the Son. So we're going to pray in the next minute. We've got a chance to respond to that. Um, and there could be multiple ways God is speaking to you. Maybe for you, there could be other ways other than this, but maybe for you, you've struggled with doubts about the inerrancy of Scripture, about the authority of Scripture, and you just need to call out to God and say, hey, I'm placing my faith that I'm going to believe Scripture is the authoritative, inerrant Word of God. Maybe you've realized that you don't really approach the Bible like you should. You approach it apathetically, half-heartedly, and you need to pray and say, I need to approach it with some seriousness. Perhaps you realize that you've been parts of your lives living like a sinner instead of living like the saint you are. Call out to God about that. Or maybe you're here, you're online, and you need to place your faith in Jesus Christ and become a saint. He died on the cross for your sins, was buried and rose from the grave so that you could do that. And all it takes is, like I said, it's not by works, it's not by something you've done, it's purely by faith in him. If you want to know more about that, this altar is open. If you want to come up here and pray for anything, I'm here. If you want me to pray with you or have questions online or those in the fellowship hall, you can go to Greensport Baptist Church at gmail.com or comment on the Facebook site. I'd love to talk to you. Let's respond to what God has called on your heart today. Dear God, thank you for speaking to us today and, and allowing us to see these passages. Lord, I know it was such a short passage, just a couple of verses, but even in the greeting, it's so powerful. Lord, I pray that we would be the people and believe what you've told us to believe about who we are, about what the Bible is, God, and who you are. And I pray that we would draw near to you and have a fire to, to do and believe and act like you've told us to. Lord, I pray if there's anybody who's here in person or listening online that needs to place their faith in you so that they can be pulled from their sin into becoming a saint, God, that they would do that. You encourage them and push them to do that, Lord. 
And we're thankful, God, that all this stuff you've shown us is not because we've done anything, but purely because of your mercy upon us, especially your son's death on the cross. Lord Jesus, we love you and thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.